0: Leonard Cohen suggested, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. Here we are again, Sarah. You and I have had many, many conversations. We're working on a project (laughs) together. Um, this is yet another one of those um, elastic relationships of two people who, who, who work well together and have never met and may never never be face-to-face in their lives, so I hope so we will someday. And I know that uh, you are going through a lot of changes, as we all are. <laughs> and so we're going to have one of our usual ping-pong matches here. Um, <laughs> yes. But before we get into that, I would like you to catch up, whoever's going to listen to this, on your story, um, not your CV, not your you know bio, but your story, how did you get here?
1: Uh, so I started life as a sweet tot on a organic hippie farm in Northern Wisconsin. So my parents were very much stick it to the man, do your own thing. I would say almost rabid anti-conformists, which is an interesting place to grow up in the conservative farmlands of Wisconsin. <laughs> And then I joined the military, which is pretty much the exact opposite of that experience. So uh, rabid conformism, honestly, and a space where women weren't necessarily welcome yet. So that was an interesting dichotomy to go from a place of radical acceptance to uh, challenges based on something I had no control over, which was my gender. And that was that was the that was probably the first time I experienced true um, bias and discrimination in in a way that was directly directly influencing my career choices, my opportunities, my potential. And so that was an interesting experience and one that I've carried with me ever since. Um, So I joined the military, traveled around, I met a a nice young Marine, had a bevy of children with him. And, And they are amazing humans to this day, surprisingly. But it has been a really fascinating journey because we've had so many experiences it almost feels like like a forest gump thing right like if i if i listed out all the things i've done in my life people would say no one person could have that much variety of experience to that to that level but it's true and it's my it's my lived reality which is fascinating so where things took a really interesting turn was when i the year i turned 30 and that was the year that my life turned inside out so uh in that year My my then husband was uh, charged with a pretty heinous crime and ended up going to prison on that. And in the process of that, we lost our house because that's what happens when you lose your breadwinner. We lost our social circles because that's what happens when you're a a felony family in a nice upper class neighborhood. Um, We also lost a lot of family support because these things are not easy for anybody. And that's just how it happens. And I didn't have any skills on paper that were marketable at the time, and I had four kids who absolutely still needed to be cared for unless I wanted to give them up to the foster care system, which I really did not want to do. And that is where I discovered the power of gratitude as a personal practice and it wasn't any artsy fartsy fairy dust kind of a thing. It was literally a survival technique. My grandmother said, It'll get better, it always changes, just you have to hang on until tomorrow, and that, that's how you get through. And she survived the depression, so she, I figured she knew what she was talking about. And what I learned in that, in that sort of crucible year was that if I could find just one little thing to be grateful for, it was enough to tide me over to the next day. So I just started doing that. And sometimes it was literally something as uh, seemingly not gratitude inducing as nobody threw up on me today. Yay! And what I found was as long as I was not being sarcastic, now I was one of those who said, I am a fluent sarcasm speaker. Sarcasm is actually really detrimental. And I was learning that in a really visceral way. But if I was being authentic about the things I was dredging up for gratitude and sometimes they were pretty slim on the ground, it was enough to carry me through. And so I just kept this practice going and this has been 20 years ago now. So it's been a hot second. But I had no idea that people were researching this or there was a science behind it or a method to the madness until about seven or eight years ago. So fast forward, I had uh, stabilized our life. We had moved to the cornfields of Indiana um, and I found myself in college. I finished my undergrad with much blood, sweat and tears. And then I was in grad school researching management and leadership and specifically corporate ethics, not the world's happiest topic ever. But I ran across Sean Aker's TED talk on happiness advantage and that that changed my world because in that moment, I realized that people actually do have a rigorous scientific approach to studying what really makes people happy. And it's fascinating to me that the things that we have been told our whole life make us happy don't. We think they do. We're really good at lying to ourselves about lots of things, including the things that make us happy. But if you look at it from a really good scientific lens, it doesn't work that way. And Mac, you know, I could give you my whole literature review of of documentation. We don't need that for this conversation. But I wouldn't I would say people should really do some thinking about this and maybe do a little bit of the research. You know, there's plenty of it out there freely accessible on the things that trigger spaces where happiness can grow in our lives. I think that that was the defining moment for me was realizing that you don't actually create happiness. You don't create any emotion. The emotion is your response, our response to the environment we find ourselves in, internal and external. And when we have spaces that are supportive or nurturing or somehow good for us, we have positive emotions. And when we have experiences that are not good for us, we have not pleasant emotions. And that was it was a game changer because that meant we actually have an opportunity to shape our spaces to l- let us have the emotions that that feel good to us and I, I mean we did evolve with emotions that are meant to encourage us to do things that keep us alive which are usually really good for us so so this sparked an entirely new a new avenue of exploration for me so because i am a very nerdy sciencey kind of person and i wanted to see some data around this i didn't just want to be handed a, a basket of talking points I wanted to see what is the good stuff that happens here and so for the last seven or eight years I've really dedicated my entire free thinking energy to how do we do this better and not just in our lives but most for me since most of us spend the bulk of our waking hours at work how do we make those spaces better We've all seen it. We may we, ourselves have experienced it. People are having heart attacks at work. We're having stress-related illnesses at work, suicides, domestic violence. There's a lot of bad stuff in the world that happens because people are not happy. So how do we course correct? We can. We can course correct. How do we do that is the question. And that's what I've focused on. That, that's my journey so far. I don't know that there is an end point. I'm not sure, but.
0: No, 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 no. There isn't any. <laughs> Don't even, don't even try to lead me down that dead end road. <laughs> Several things you said, um, and, and this is what I think draws us to each other so much, is that we just, we just love to go, ooh, ooh, ooh. You know, what you said about spaces for happiness, early on in my, in, my, in my teaching days, though not at the beginning, but it took a couple of years, and all of a sudden it came to me that my primary job as a teacher was not to transfer knowledge. My primary job as a teacher was to create a context where people were allowed to explore yes. and discover and do it in their own way, you know, within having to take SATs and stuff. And don't get sure. me started on that. But I mean, that's. <laughs> but you know what you said about spaces for happiness and what you said about sarcasm <clears throat> for a good part of my life. I did not know how to be to have gratitude without a caveat. Mm-hmm. It's like w- when you go outside and it's a beautiful day. I mean, I mean, it is a beautiful day here. It's it's chilly and stuff, but, you know, I don't know how many times I will see somebody and I'll say, oh, what a beautiful day. And they, and they will, their response is, yeah, but it's going to rain tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You don't have to denigrate gratitude, right? You don't have to qualify it. And that's a hard lesson for me to learn. And I was very sarcastic for most of my life. I thought it made me witty and funny, but Mm -hmm. it just made me darker and darker and darker.
1: Yeah, I think, and this is not, you know, I blame a lot of things on American society, but this is not a strictly American challenge. This is a human challenge, I think. But here in the societies that I have lived in, which are predominantly North American, There is this sense that if we're not self-flagellating in some way, we're not doing it right. Right. We're not allowed to be happy unless we're also making ourselves miserable or somebody else miserable and work shouldn't be happy. It should be a burden and life is a drudge. And then you die. And then if you, after you die, maybe you get some eternal reward, if you're lucky. And I know like, I've studied the history of how that came to be. And I get the control mechanisms in place around that. And I still think it's garbage. We don't need to be, threatened with punishment every minute of our life even by ourselves to keep ourselves on a healthy path I would hope that what are we like a gazillion years into human evolution that we will have figured out that we can use the wrinkly parts of our brain to find a better path forward we, we grew the wrinkly parts let's use them they're already there
0: yeah they are they are available there they was, are available <laughs> something something popped into my head there was a movie Years ago, um, it had Dick Van Dyke and Suzanne Plachette. I I don't know why. Mm.
1: Usually,
0: usually I can't remember actors. But it was called What's So Bad About Feeling Good. (gasps) Yes. And there was a toucan, you know, the bird, that was a carrier of this very strange virus. And if you caught the virus, all of a sudden, you were happy. (gasps) Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, that's what happened. (laughs) That All the... The, the 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 man right which is right the power structure the etc cetera, etc cetera, was terrified because all of their profit comes from people being miserable so oh, yeah. so they finally track first of all they 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 uh, work really hard to find a vaccine this is like a pandemic really really so that people can't get this happiness virus and then they capture the bird now they don't they don't kill it but they keep it in a cage and they put it in siberia or someplace oh geez. and then they start giving people shots and all of a sudden dick van dyke and suzanne plochette were like wait wait a minute <laughs> it was it was kind of cool being happy all the time all right i got to go to work and you know yeah. and it was it was just what you're talking about and it, it was probably made in the 50s or 60s it was, i was mean, it was a long long time ago but why is that and and this is completely rhetorical. Um, why is it considered suspicious that anyone actually embraces? I mean, I'm, I love being content. I love being happy. And I work, you know that, I work really hard. I love my work. So I don't feel like, I don't feel like I have to be driven right. Like a, like a slave on an oar in order to do my work so why why can't can't we and this is what you do i think why can't we market that connection between happiness and productivity
1: yeah because that's the thing right so i live in the midwest where happiness is not seen as a bonus i guess (laughs) (laughs) Maybe because we we have no sun a good portion of the year here that might be part of it. But what I see is this sense that if you are happy at work, there's something wrong with you. Like you're defective. You're not not serious. I've been told you're not serious about your job. Now I'm very good at what I do. I'm actually not to toot my own horn, but I'm usually very good at whatever I choose to do. I have a brain that I like to use and I like to learn new things and I like to learn ways of doing it better. So I'm one of those people who you give me a task, I'll figure it out and then I'll make the process 10% 10 better. And I'll have fun while I'm doing it because that, that process is fun for me. I actually enjoy it. So I may be humming or bouncing on my yoga ball or whatever in the process. And I've, I mean, I can't tell you how many performance reviews have been. Your work product is good, but your attitude's a little suspicious. Yep like that is so insane and that's not just anecdotal i mean that well that is, that is anecdotal <laughs> but the data that shows that the people like me who like what they're doing are consistently not just a little bit more productive radically more productive like 15 20 30% more yeah. productive when they are engaged in activities that fuel their soul however you translate that so for companies who are consistently looking for ways to shave money off of their their costs right Health healthcare costs go down, um, error rates go down, customer satisfaction goes up, like the list of benefits of happy, engaged employees is massive. And given that the American GDP is losing about a half trillion dollars a year in lost productivity, just due to employee disengagement, and that doesn't capture the other trillion dollars lost to voluntary turnover and all of the other healthcare costs, yada, yada, that we know are eating, eating huge holes into the bottom line of organizations, the fact that they're categorically disinterested in looking at this weird way of looking at business blows my mind. They'd rather fire people to cut costs than create spaces where their employees can find happiness in their work. That's, that's a really weird space. I mean, people need to sit with that for a second and think, what the heck's going on here why are why why are we doing this because it's different oh no not different
0: oh no, we can't have that and part of it i think is that we are using the wrong friggin dictionary mm-hmm. and and in at least the american dictionary play and work are defined as opposites.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And there are some people doing really great work in that space. I really love the people who are uh, who are actively engaged in the play at work movement. You know, the, the Lego experience is a big one of those, but there are several um, like established frameworks for that beyond just the general principle that you could, I don't know, enjoy your work enough to consider it playful.
0: <laughs> Keep your voice down.
1: I know. I'm waiting for like the, the <laughs> men in the dark suits oh, to show up.
0: Sliding <laughs> the, the They're in there in their little dark helmets. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and in my in my critical thinking class, I just see from the get go. I say, here's this is our definition of critical thinking for the day. Critical thinking is playing with ideas. Nice. Now, about a third of the people go. Hmm. <laughs> Um, about a third of the people go. That's really cool. But about a third of the people go. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> I mean, all we have to do is watch little kids. They are the critical thinkers. They are, and they are energized. They are, you know, they just—they're like, ooh, 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 idea to idea, possibility to possibility. And we know that uh, we learn most of what we know when we're little. Mm-hmm. And I think, and this is based on no studies at all, except my own life. And I love little kids. I, I, I can watch little kids all day long. Not like a dirty old man, by the way, but just you no. Know.
1: But they're yeah. fascinating. Their energy is exciting. Yeah, I get you.
0: Yeah, and 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 they get it, but we're supposed to grow up and <laughs> stop getting it. We're just tall children, <laughs>
1: right? Right? toe the line. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean, get get your bend your head over. I need to see more wrinkles on your forehead, right. <laughs> shuffling instead of skipping. Stop that, you know, stop singing and start talking. Oy. And you said
1: something interesting, which is and I agree with you that the, the establishment is afraid because, because the current model for building profit generation is based on fundamental dissatisfaction. Yep. There's no there's no technical structural reason to buy a new car every two years but my goodness are people who religiously do so or to upgrade to a larger house after your kids have moved out or any of these things retail therapy the fact that the term retail therapy exists in our language should tell us that there's a scam and i'm not i'm not against people making a profit for the things that they do i mean my parents don't like that i say that because they are still radical hippies but but I'm not opposed to people being paid a fair wage for their intellectual property and their labor. That's very reasonable to me. And you could still sell stuff and make money off of stuff that that contributed to this ever growing concept of people being excited about what they're doing, because that's going to generate need for building materials and support for those thinking opportunities and all of those activities that go into experimental spaces or just doing work more. I mean, if a company is performing better, that means they're selling more widgets or services, whatever it is that they do, which also comes with a cost of goods. So there's still plenty of space for you to sell your stuff as a seller of stuff to people who are enjoying what they're doing. I think there's actually room for more. It's just a different model. Henry Ford was a jerk frankly. He had a very specific plan in place and his management style is terrible and I would argue that that is a piece of our American business model keep people crushed, pay them just enough to buy your stuff and don't educate them beyond the level that they need to make the one part you need them to make. I mean, when you put it out in those terms, it's a it's a spin game. Yes, he made he did some good stuff in the world, I suppose, but he did a lot of harm, and we're still paying the price for that. It's it's just it's fascinating to me. People would just rather stay; they'd rather just wait for their turn to hold the whip rather than change the system that where nobody has to deal with that.
0: Absolutely, it's uh, the the and I've worked in four factories in my life. I'm so sorry. Two of which were assembly lines, mm-hmm. and. One thing I learned from the assembly line, which 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 is maybe why some people could do that, is I learned to turn my brain totally off. Mm, mm-hmm. So I would I I worked in a plastic doll factory, mm. and I had to in front of like a two hundred degree oven. And I saw so big asbestos gloves on and a mask and everything. So as the as the little doll forms came around in front of me, I had to open it up with this hook and take the doll out and throw it over my shoulder into a bin and then scrape off the plastic and spray it with wax, you know. And mm-hmm. after doing that for about twenty minutes, I was an automaton.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the uh, next thing I knew, the bell would ring for our fifteen minute break, exactly fifteen minutes, and I would briefly come alive. It would ring again and i would go back into yeah. The, yeah i would go back into this place and so maybe part of the not quite attraction but part of the magnet of being in that place of um pure choices choices are programmed for me like i have a, a 47 inch television well, now I need a sixty-inch television. Right. I mean, that, right—that is like programmed into me—is that I don't have to, I don't have to ask any questions. I don't have to consider possibilities. I don't have to be skeptical. I don't have to question my own crap. All I do is, all right, we got. Look at that new TV before it's out of the box, honey. How can we save up for the next one? Yeah, it, it, it's like sitting down to a really nice, nice breakfast, but talking about lunch.
1: <laughs> yes, and so that's interesting to bring that up. So my dad and I have a lot of conversations about this. My dad is is a thinky think person. Uh, he's always been a thinker, and his he would actually say that contentment is the goal, not necessarily happiness. And I I never say that happiness is the goal. I always say happiness is how you measure how well you're doing. Um, because again, it's just a response to your environment. It's not it's not a holy grail of the endpoint in and of itself. But he says contentment maybe should be because with the lens of if you create spaces where you find contentment rather than happiness. Because another thing about happiness is happiness is just one of the zillions of emotions that we experience as humans. And it's it's going to be fleeting by nature because life will happen. And so when something bad happens, it is normal and healthy that you have a response that matches that. If somebody passes away that you care about, you will feel sad, grief, loss, anger, all that stuff. Good. That means you're human. Humanity is working. That's not a bad thing. <laughs> but he says that the, the sense of contentment of having of enough, right? There's enough. It doesn't, doesn't engender that sense of always having to scrabble for something else just for the sake of scrabbling. Now, I do believe in improvement in the sense of personal improvement and personal oh. growth, right? That's different. That's different than needing to have a new pair of shoes because it's a new month. I think that's a different concept. And when you come to that place of satisfaction, you do, I think, and you've, we've talked about this before, Mac, that's a different experience for a lot of people because we're, we're actually taught to be actively viscerally dissatisfied yep. by all of these messages. I mean, that's all the media pumps at us. That's all we pump at ourselves. I mean, I think we internalize it and then we spread the gospel of dissatisfaction. And again, I don't think it has to, I, we know it doesn't have to be that way. And your example just then about, um, turning into that place of of drudgery and stuff but and we we do ascribe this weird negative space to that but when we we don't judge children for being curious we don't judge children for having fun why why is it okay for them with their relative lack of responsibility but yet, while that is the perfect balance for adult responsibility, right? with, great, with great power comes great responsibility, and should come great balancing of that responsibility with these other things that create that more holistic space. So we're not just frazzled. Maybe we are engaged in hard work for a while, but then we do allow ourselves to enjoy something to balance it out. I think that's where the contentment comes into place, is that you've, it's like the Tai Chi, right? You found that place of balance in your life. And that's when you, when you can see when it happens, and it's... It's beautiful, unless you're judging it as laziness or something, which we tend to do.
0: Even the words we use, you and I use, and, you know, I'm a recovering English teacher, so <laughs> it, it fascinate me. We call it working hard. We don't call it working fun or working mm-hmm. well or working energized. It's hard, and there aren't a lot of positive connotations to the word hard. Not and, really, no. um, You know what you said and and you just did my segue for me one one of the things that i learned as a teacher is that if i keep my mouth shut and really listen that my participants will always do the segue to the next piece of the of the content every single time it's it's this and they don't know what it is they have no idea but (laughs) but what you said about enough you know that i work in addiction and and recovery and stuff and one of the things that i think is true of addicts, whether you're whether you're addicted to gambling, sex, buying things, whatever. But with with drugs too, mm-hmm. is you don't understand the power of enough.
1: You
0: mm-hmm. just don't understand that there is a good thing that this is enough. This is enough coffee. This is this,
1: yeah. is, this. That, that one's questionable, huh? <laughs>
0: But okay. you're right, you're right, you're right. right. Or, you know, this is enough of a computer. This is enough of a house. This is enough of a car, you know. Um, I I know, I have some friends who who um, lease cars. Now, I lease my car, but it's for, it has to do with dollars and cents for me. But they lease a car because every two years they have to have a new car. And And, you know, somebody asked me, how do you like your car? And I said, I love it because you step on one pedal and you go faster. You step <laughs> on the other pedal, you go slower. And they were like, no, but what about the features? I said, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's it.
1: And I don't – there's a distinction there, right? There's nothing wrong with taking delight in the features. There's nothing wrong with taking delight in a comfortable pair of shoes you just bought. There's nothing wrong in enjoying the stuff around you. Unless you can't enjoy the stuff around you because you've now you have it. So now it's not good enough anymore. And you're longing for the next best thing. You know, I see this. I see this with people in relationships all the time. Boy, I could not be a counselor because so I would just smack people around. Like, <laughs> they're in a relationship. They, they, they courted this person. This person courted them. They, they love each other. They think they get in a relationship and that they haven't changed. And now it's not good enough anymore. And so that they're already looking to upgrade, right? I mean, that, that's, are there are tropes about this in our culture about people who do this with their relationships the fundamental connection the connection point of our species is our and not just mean intimate relationships i'm talking about friendship relationships professional relationships as well there are lots of people who are constantly scanning the horizon to see for look for the next upgrade and that's such an arbitrary thing i mean I suppose there's a difference between this non-nutrient dense eucalyptus leaf that you could eat maybe. And this nutrient dense barbecue steak, that, you know that will offer you more nutrition or something. That's a different kind of upgrade. That's actually more of what you actually need. Right. But I don't think we actually tend to understand the difference between needs and wants. And what I really don't think we understand well at all. And this is based on my exposure with my clients that I work with both coaching and corporate clients. When I ask somebody, What are your values? They have no idea. One of two things, it's consistently one of two things happens, either they say, uh, and they don't even know, or they rattle off a laundry list of words that they were told they're supposed to say. And in classic Enron fashion, none of those words actually match anything that they hold sacred to themselves they just were handed this bucket and that's what they run with. And they've never really peeled back the lid and looked at those things and see if they make sense to you. And it's okay to pass on your values, right? Like I, I worked very hard to exhibit my values in action to my children because they matter to me. I hope that they will find some value in those things too. But if they don't, I also hope that they find something for themselves because that's really like our, our anchor point, right? Is to understand what are the things that, are, that matter to me. And you have to kind of re-examine that periodically because we do change over time. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what mattered to me when I was 16 may or may not still matter to me now. And I can't tell you for any given person what that thing is. You have to do that work yourself. Oh, no, you know. But once you do that, once you know where your anchor points are now, you can safely explore because you've got something to, to base it against. Do I want to take this job? Well, how does it fit with my values? Will I hate it because it's constant conflict or will it support my personal growth? Do I want to make this friend? I don't know. Do they support? Do they and not have the same values? That's a different conversation. Are we compatible? Are our, can we hold our values and walk together down this path or will we constantly be in friction with each other?
0: Well, and and, and then I'm going to ask you a a closing question. And uh, you've already done the segue for me again. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) You know, finding what you just said about about friendships and, you you know, how we connect. For me, it's finding that sweet spot between congruence and difference. Yes. And, And because without the difference, you don't have enough creative tension. So if you have too much difference, all you do is create without yeah. life. But if you have not enough difference, all you do is create groupthink, which is which is a dangerous <laughs> place for, for uh, all of us. Yes. I am excited about the changes in your life, about you all moving, and how it came about, which is the universe doing <laughs> what it does best, which <laughs> is like, I'll throw this in Sarah's pond, and let's <laughs> see what happens next. And – your new job and your dissertation and the project we're working on which we're not i'm not going to get a chance to talk to you about that today because i my I'm, I'm at about four volts on a 12 volt system <laughs> so, uh but we will talk soon because things have lightened so um you have four kids right i do yeah okay so years down the line <clears throat> sarah has moved on either to a Managed care facility, or a, a a tent in the woods, or wherever, and your kids have kids, so your grandkids or grandkid, um, and what what would you want them to call you? Would you want to be grandma or or? I don't care. All right. Well, let's just go, with grandma. Grandma works, sure. Yeah, grandma works. So <clears throat> they've been in school and they've done a unit in their school about the year twenty twenty. <laughs> Just like we did for the civil war. or for, mm-hmm. right? And these, these little wonderful bundles of energy and discovery and curiosity to come up and they say, mom or dad, our teacher said that 2020 was really hard. Can you tell us how did grandma deal with it? So what would you like? Oh, I love this question. Tell them about how Sarah dealt with 2020. What would you like your legacy to be for this year?
1: I hope, I hope that my legacy for 2020 is that we had lots of conversations about, yes, there are a lot of challenges going on. There will always be a lot of challenges, maybe not quite this uh, crucibly like, right, but there will always be this stuff. And the, the real question is not, is there challenge, but how do you hold each other close and support each other through these things? You know, we we learned so much last year. We will continue to learn from the experiences of last year. A lot of necessary conversations happened that people were just not ready to have until they didn't have the choice to do so. And so I hope that my kids carry with them that willingness to step into those messy spaces and embrace those opportunities for conversation rather than turning into armadillos and rolling up on little balls.
0: Wow. I'm just taking a note because in our conversation is when the, the, um, title of the podcast shows up. So I've got like five possible titles, which I'm not going to figure out now. I just want to get it word for word. So I'm being,
1: happy. just don't call it armadillo balls. That could be
0: misleading. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Thank you, my friend. Um, I will, I will be in touch with you next week. Cause I am excited about the project we were working on. So I want to talk about our next steps. Awesome. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Nick, it's
1: always a pleasure to have a conversation with you. We have so much fun together. Thank you we for being it, in my right.
0: life. <laughs> you know, if, the, if, if the man is, which of course. The I'm sure they are, yeah. They're like, uh-oh, this could be a revolution. <laughs> yes. we got to isolate these two. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Um, good luck with all, with the whole thing. Love to your family. Uh, hi to Chris. I've seen him in the background in your kitchen, like four times.
1: <laughs> so, He's real. He exists. Yeah. Uh, I'm
0: pretty sure Chris exists. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Chris exists. <laughs> all right, Sarah.
1: Thanks, Mac. Uh,
0: yeah. Later. Bye. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.